Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 2nd. In today's news, more than 60 million Americans are now under curfew with terrible reports of lootings and shootings from coast to coast. Two autopsies say George Floyd's death was a homicide, but the cause differs. And local leaders say white instigators are to blame for some of the worst rioting. But first, the big idea. In a massive show of force last night, federal law enforcement officers fired rubber bullets and tear gas at peaceful protesters outside of the White House at the same time as President Trump, speaking in the Rose Garden, threatened to mobilize thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers to quell lawlessness across the country. Hundreds of protesters were pushed away from Lafayette Square by the National Guard, the U.S. Park Police, and Secret Service. I was there covering the protest. The ambush began half an hour before the city's newly imposed curfew of 7 p.m. went into effect. When the crowds were cleared, the president walked through the park to visit the historic St. John's Episcopal Church, which had been set on fire on Sunday. The sudden use of force left early protesters bruised, bleeding and in shock. Although the night would ultimately end with a spattering of smashed windows and vandalized businesses, the scene in front of the White House when law enforcement descended was far from the violent mobs that Trump described in his Rose Garden address. The gathering was smaller and calmer than previous evenings, with people dancing and singing to a woman playing a guitar. They weren't knocking over barricades. Some demonstrators planned to disperse before 7 p.m., which is the time of the curfew that D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser had imposed in hopes of avoiding another destructive night. But the appearance of the National Guard and mounted U.S. Park Police brought the most aggressive law enforcement response yet. The FBI, ATF, DEA, U.S. Marshals, and Bureau of Prisons all had heavily armed officers flooding downtown, many clad in riot gear. Attorney General William Barr also appeared in the park where protesters shouted at him and chanted his name with expletives. As the crowd booed Barr, the law enforcement officers began advancing. With shields that said military police, they stood in a line, shoulder to shoulder, and moved forward every few minutes. When they knelt, as officers across the country have been doing to show solidarity with demonstrators, the crowd cheered. They thought the cops were kneeling to show solidarity with their movement. But the protesters quickly realized that they were actually only kneeling so that they could put on their gas masks. Moments later, law enforcement officers fired at the gathered masses. Rubber bullets hit protesters who were standing atop a bathroom that had been burned the night before. One person fell from the structure. People ran down 16th Street, trying to flee the chemical canister spewing gases that left them coughing. Some stopped running when they started vomiting. Others yelled at people to keep moving in attempts to avoid a stampede. One protester told another, quote, they flushing us out. In the hours that followed, the impact of the officer's aggression kept protesters away from the White House. They instead scattered across the city in droves, turning the evening into a sort of cat and mouse game for Washington police officers trying to encircle them. Helicopters filled the air with spotlights. I think I saw a drone or two as well. When protesters found themselves outnumbered, they were asked to sit so they could be arrested one by one, a process far more orderly than the chaos in Lafayette Square. As the arrests mounted overnight, Mayor Bowser took to Twitter to condemn Trump and what she called the federal use of munitions against peaceful protesters. 
She said they moved in 25 minutes before her curfew without any provocation, an act that she says makes the job of D.C. police officers much more difficult. Arlington County officers who were supporting Park Police at Lafayette Square were ordered to leave downtown after county officials realized that they had been part of what they viewed as a presidential publicity stunt. County manager Mark Schwartz says the mutual aid agreement was not put in place to allow for the president to get a photo op in front of a church, but to protect public safety. After the path from the White House to St. John's was cleared, Trump and a large entourage, most of them not wearing masks, walked through Lafayette Square to the historic church. The president held up a Bible for several seconds. Asked by a reporter whether it was his Bible, he responded, quote, It's a Bible. Marianne Bood, the Episcopal bishop in Washington, was outraged. She had no idea that they would be clearing the area with tear gas so that they could use one of her churches as what she called a prop. She noted that the Bible Trump was holding declares that God is love and is full of messages deeply at odds with, as she put it, everything he has said and done to inflame violence. Her anger was shared by the demonstrators as they tried to stop their eyes from stinging and argued about what to do next after they were pushed away from the White House. Nasiriba Ika, 19, ran back toward Lafayette Square looking for a set of lost car keys. Her family hadn't wanted her to go to the protest, but she said she was tired of sitting on the sidelines. Sarah Rosner, a 37-year-old DuPont Circle resident and the lead bartender at the Four Seasons, was recovering from being pushed to the ground by an officer. Sarah's friend told her that she had to get out of there because she couldn't hit her head again. Protesters who lingered were met by dozens of D.C. officers in riot gear. They spread out across downtown streets and then found each other again, trying to stay on the move to avoid being encircled. Some headed toward the National Mall, where troops were stationed around the World War II and Lincoln Memorials. The DEA and FBI blocked roads in areas that had attracted looting the previous three nights. Barr then made an appearance again, walking downtown with a heavy security presence and alongside Defense Secretary Mark Esper and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. At Thomas Circle, protesters climbed on top of the towering statue of Major General George Henry Thomas, but only for a moment. Police sirens began wailing as cop cars rushed down Massachusetts Avenue. The protesters, mistakenly thinking the officers were rushing to arrest them, quickly hopped down and began running. Dozens walked together up 14th Street Northwest, the site of some of the worst rioting back in 1968, but now one of D.C.'s most expensive neighborhoods. They moved past boarded-up shops and many of my favorite restaurants like La Diplomat and Estadio. Some people appeared on the balconies of fancy condo buildings on 14th Street to cheer the protesters, and they held up Black Lives Matter signs. As police converged on demonstrators gathered on Swan Street, which is a side street near here, a resident let dozens of them take shelter in his home. Rahul Duby was sitting on his porch when police started pushing the group down the street and firing chemicals, creating a frantic bottleneck that sent the protesters scrambling for safety. Soon, the 44-year-old had let more than 100 people into his home. They filled all three floors and spilled into the backyard. He promised to let them stay as long as it takes. At I and 16th Street, D.C. police formed lines that sealed off streets around a group of 30 protesters until they were surrounded. For 20 minutes or so, the protesters remained on foot, chanting and waving signs as police backed in vans to take them away to the jails. Then, after the group of protesters was directed to sit down on the street, the police led them one by one into the vans. Most complied peacefully with a methodical process. Shoes were removed, fingerprints taken, belongings bagged. Police removed a can of black spray paint from a backpack that belonged to a young white man in a t-shirt and khaki shorts. 
A young woman went limp on the street, and four officers had to carry her to the van. Later, she got up and walked. As similar assembly lines of arrest played out across D.C., those who remained on the streets seemed more interested in looting than protesting. Around 10 p.m., they began smashing windows on New Jersey Avenue along 4th and 7th Streets. Chinatown businesses, including Dunkin' Donuts, Legal Seafood, and BB Bop, had their windows smashed out. One man pried the boards that had been put on a CVS. Dozens sprinted inside, yelling, Food! The man who had pulled the boards off emerged moments later with his arms bulging with soft drinks and snack packets. The groups that were left on the streets were trailed by hundreds of law enforcement officers who fired flash grenades and sent the protesters sprinting away. The vandals would run for a block or two, then they'd regain their confidence and return to looting, only to inspire another rush by police. As the window of a police vehicle was smashed, Army Black Hawk helicopters descended upon Chinatown, flying almost as low as the rooftops. Broken glass and branches were sent flying as protesters screamed and ran. Military officials said it was intended as a show of force. By midnight, D.C. was far quieter than the three previous nights. In front of the White House, scores of Secret Service and military police sat on the curb with no use for their shields or helmets. Back on Swan Street, the house of that man who took in more than 100 protesters was still full. With the streets blocked off by law enforcement, people were afraid to leave as the standoff stretched past midnight. Doobie worried about the protesters getting hungry. He said he had five pounds of ground beef he could feed them, but not anything more than that. When Doobie asked police for assistance, he said they told him to go back inside or they would arrest him. These kids, he said by telephone, just want to go home. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, it is not just Washington, of course. More than 60 million Americans are under curfew orders today. The curfews affected people in more than 200 U.S. cities and at least 27 states, including all of Arizona. Four police officers were shot early this morning in St. Louis. All four remain conscious and their wounds are non-life-threatening. The shootings followed a large protest that got violent after police shot tear gas into crowds. Louisville's police chief was fired after the police-involved shooting and killing of David McAtee, a 53-year-old owner of a local restaurant. The Democratic mayor said he fired the chief after learning that the police officers involved in that shooting did not turn on their body cameras. Also overnight, two people died and two others were wounded in Davenport, Iowa. A police officer was among those injured and is expected to recover. Two people were killed in protests in Cicero, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Town leaders said that at least 60 people were arrested, and they said that outside agitators entered the town because they were pushed out of Chicago from that city's curfew. Looting intensified overnight in Manhattan as police clashed with protesters after that city's 11 p.m. curfew. All night long, stores were hit across lower Manhattan and Midtown, including that iconic Macy's in Herald Square. John Ahrens, a radio producer, was beaten by a crowd of counter-protesters in Philadelphia last night after they caught him recording them while they mocked and yelled insults at demonstrators. John shared videos of a crowd carrying baseball bats and clubs, shouting the N-word and promising to attack the protesters before they beat him senselessly. In Omaha, Nebraska, the county attorney announced that the white bar owner who shot a 22-year-old black man in his establishment over the weekend will not be charged for his killing. Number two, 
In Minnesota, where this all began a week ago, two autopsy reports, one requested by George Floyd's family and the other from Hennepin County, agree that his death is a homicide, but they disagree over what exactly killed him. During a news conference Monday afternoon, two doctors hired by the Floyd family to do a private autopsy said they believe he died of asphyxia. Hours later, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner issued his final public report saying that Floyd died as a result of cardiopulmonary arrest, which, the report notes, he experienced while being restrained by law enforcement. The report also said, this is the official county report, that he had arteriosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease, as well as fentanyl and methamphetamine in his system, plus, quote, other significant conditions. This was the most extensive description released yet of the autopsy performed by the medical examiner's office on the 46-year-old. Number three, in some cities, local officials have been going out of their way to note that black protesters are struggling to maintain peaceful protests in the face of radical young white men joining the fray seemingly determined to commit mayhem and incite violence. From Baltimore to Sacramento and Washington, black protesters have been filmed protecting storefronts and placing their bodies before police barricades to preserve principles of nonviolence and to prevent backlash that's disproportionately aimed at their community. Videos have emerged, too, of them confronting white demonstrators and even, in D.C., turning them over to police. A video from Los Angeles shows a black woman yelling at two young white men who are spray painting a Starbucks. She yells on video, quote, don't spray stuff on here when they're going to blame black people for this. After reviewing footage of the weekend's events, Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle, said she fears the black community will shoulder the blame for havoc she says others have mainly caused. She said in an interview that it's striking how many of the people who were doing the looting and stealing and setting the fires over the weekend were young white men. In East Liberty, the gentrifying neighborhood of Pittsburgh, a young black protester delivered a case of bottled water to a phalanx of police officers who were standing guard at a demonstration Sunday afternoon outside of a Target store. Alexander Cash, who's 23 years old, lost his job at a nearby residence inn because of the coronavirus pandemic. He was there to speak out against what happened to George Floyd and so many other black men who looked just like him. But he said he also wanted to quote, spread positivity and preach a message of nonviolence. He said, it doesn't matter if it's one or 45 cops standing there. We can all be peaceful. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 2nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.